Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business newscast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. Later on today on the show, we're going to be discussing racial bias in the workplace. It's been a very hotly debated topic, especially following the arrest of two black men at a Philadelphia Starbucks last month. The men were apparently just sitting there when a manager called police. And this week, Starbucks employees in the U.S., they're going to begin anti-racial bias training. Canadian employees, they're going to follow next month. So we're speaking to Weil Bowen. His company, HRX Technology, it specializes in removing implicit bias from the hiring process. Weil has some insights with regards to how we can do away with a lot of the bias that we just find in everyday workplaces. Yeah, that'll be a good discussion to have. Meanwhile, we're also going to be talking about the ongoing struggles millennials and Gen Xers face when it comes to saving for retirement. Matthew Williams is the Senior Vice President at Franklin Templeton Investments Canada. He'll join us later on. But first, let's chat about some of the news stories that are ongoing today. Yeah, I mean, it's Monday. So there's some interesting stuff that broke over the weekend. I think everybody's chatting and a little bit about the oil spill mm-hmm. that uh, happened with a Kinder Morgan facility just north of Kamloops here is about 100 liters of oil. That's a little less than a barrel. I, so I don't want to minimize what happened there, but a bit of a negligible impact on the environment. But it yeah. still is raising a lot of concerns about this. I think especially since, of course, Kinder Morgan has that May 31st deadline coming up where it wants assurances that it can proceed with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Haley, I don't know if Kinder Morgan's necessarily going to win in the court of public opinion following something like this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, it's a spill. And like you said, it's a relatively small spill. But one of the major issues around this project, you have a lot of people saying, you know what, we don't want any spills. We have environmental concerns. We have concerns about what building this is going to mean. So, I mean, the fact that this happened days before the deadline, I think, certainly is playing into some of the fears people have about the project. Interestingly, over the weekend, too, there are protests both in favor of the pipeline and against it, in (laughs) favor in Langley. I think about 100 people gathered to support the project. And all the way in Montreal, there is a protest of about a 1,000 people who were standing behind the people who opposed the project. So, I mean, reinforcing again that this is increasingly a national issue, not just a local one. And on that point, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, he is going to be in Calgary addressing the Chamber of Commerce there. Later on this week, his speech is going to be focused on ensuring economic stability in Canada. I definitely think that he's gearing up maybe towards the ears of Kinder Morgan Although I don't know if it's going to be enough to sway them one decision or another in time for their deadline the following day. Yeah, we'll have, well, we have that deadline. We have potential assurances coming from the federal government, but then we also still have court cases ongoing that could completely derail this this project and plans for it as well. We're waiting on a major federal one. And there were two BC cases that were dismissed, but appeals could be on the horizon too. So many aspects, it's not just... Thursday we're waiting for other things could come yeah, down I, the pipe. I'll say this. Look, uh, uh, an oil spill, it's not going to sway the BC government from its position that it's taken, obviously. Uh, if anything, it'll, it'll make its heels dig in even further at this point. But it's faced a lot of pressure. Even the you know government of Alberta, they've passed legislation that would allow it to curb oil exports to British Columbia. And, BC's stand firm on where it is going forward at this point. So I, I'm 
fascinating to see how this eventually ends. Uh, my suspicion is, I don't know, in, in retrospect, I, I wonder where people are going to think Ottawa's position was, where maybe we needed more of a, a show of strength from the federal government, you know, uh, proceeding forward with this entire debate that's been going on. But I, I it's really more of a time will tell sort of situation. Yeah. We'll uh, well, another interesting thing uh, just over the weekend is that the U.S. Trade Representative uh, is asking the World Trade Organization to form a dispute settlement panel over BC's wine rules. It's actually a pretty old thing that's been going on ever since 2015 when BC introduced these new rules that would allow only wine that's made in BC to be sold on grocery store shelves. But uh, of course, this is different from that store within a store model, which would actually permit the sale of wines from other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. But I think the timing of this is what's <laughs> notable, Haley. What, what else is going on right now that uh, might coincide with the timing of this uh, request to the WTO? Oh, I don't know. That uh, NAFTA renegotiation, mm. nine months in, I think. And we yeah. also saw the U.S., Flirt with the idea of tariffs of up to 25% on all vehicles imported into the U.S., which would hurt Canada and Mexico quite significantly. Yeah, they, they even launched like this probe, the Trump administration, a probe into auto imports and whether they posed a national security threat, which yeah. is interesting. Um, also, June 1st would be the expiration of the steel tariff exemption that Canada has mm-hmm. right now. So I, I, I just think it's just one more way of ramping up pressure on uh, with regards to free trade and, and Canadian trading partners here. Yeah, and we can point to, to, I mean, there are issues with planes, there are issues with softwood, many of these still ongoing. I do think to some extent it does seem like pressure tactics and negotiating tactics. And I mean, to be fair, why wouldn't any party in this dispute at this point in the renegotiation sort of use the tools they have to try and, and get a good deal? But it seems like they're quite far apart, especially on on issues concerning auto. So I don't know how all of this will play into that. No, I, I, I don't want to dismiss the idea that the U.S. has a case here. I mean, I mean, it's clear like why they'd be upset the fact that you know can't the BC government is favoring you know only BC wines for their grocery store shelves. I'll say this though: uh, there's only 27 grocery stores that would actually be licensed to sell grocery, or I should say, wine on grocery store shelves. I I've, I can't think of a, a single one that I've actually walked into and I've seen BC wine sold on grocery store shelves. I, have you encountered this like here in Vancouver or have you spotted it anywhere? Not in Vancouver. I, I have been to a store where it's a store within a store model, but okay. I believe that there is a Save on Foods in South Surrey that has wine sold on the actual shelf. I've never bought wine actually yeah. from a, a grocery store if I'm out to go purchase a bottle of wine. I'm probably going to a, a BC liquor store. And again, I, I'm not trying to minimize the dispute that the U.S. Trade Representative is bringing up here, but I, I just I wonder how much of an impact it's having on sales of, of U.S. wines here in Canada. Like, yeah, I, I'm sure it's negligible, but I think it's more about the idea because opening up grocery stores to selling wine that was a huge first step, and I yeah. think the idea is more is to come as we sort of see a re-envisioning of our liquor laws in the province. And Canada is the largest single market for U.S. wine. So if we see a point where 
any grocery store can sell it, that then becomes a bigger issue. The other thing is think about when you're down in Washington State. You know, grocery stores, yeah, they can sell you know booze there. Not yeah. a problem. It's not such a big deal. So, but what if grocery stores had a rule where you know they wouldn't stock BC wine? It just it was just a plain rule. Like we would you know raise a lot of concerns about that as well. So. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I I totally understand uh, why the case is being made against Canada at this point. But um, uh, good talking about that. But uh, we're gonna talk about I guess that racial bias uh, issue that's going on. So while Bowen, uh, he's gonna join us right after this. In the coming weeks, Starbucks stores across Canada and the United States are going to close their doors for the afternoon as thousands of employees undergo training for implicit bias. It's one of the steps the retail giant is taking in the wake of two black men in Philadelphia who were arrested after a manager called police as the men waited inside to meet a friend. So what does implicit racial bias entail? And despite its good intentions, could this training actually be ineffective in some degree? Joining us today is Wild Boeing. He is the CEO and founder of HRX Technology. Wild, I want to thank you for joining us on the show once again. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Before we we get into this particular Starbucks conversation, because we know that in June, Canadian stores will be closing down, but it's actually next week in the United States that they're going to be closing the stores down for the afternoon. But tell us a little bit about what it is when we're talking about implicit racial bias. What is that exactly? So uh, implicit bias is our attitudes towards another race, another gender. So like the way we think when we meet them, when we interact with them, the way we talk, the way we interact with them. Um, And it's a very popular thing now because of our understanding of unconscious bias and how we are all have it. And organizations now are trying to really understand this topic. Um, In the case of Starbucks, and I think in the States, it's very common to see a racial bias incidents like this. Uh, In other places, gender is is a critical topic for them. So... Well, it seems as if in the United States, I mean, there are a lot of issues coming to the forefront, but I think it's still very much an issue here in Canada as well that I I, I find oftentimes Canadians will kind of give ourselves a pat on the back because we're a very multicultural country. We, we always like to think of ourselves as more of a mosaic than a melting pot, but I think there are a lot of institutional problems if you look at the history of, say, indigenous people. And we also see just immigration as well. It is having a big impact. And I think a lot of Canadians don't necessarily recognize the way that it's actually affecting fellow Canadians here as well. Is is this kind of a sense that you've gotten, like you're not originally from Canada, but I'm wondering if it's maybe an experience that you can definitely relate to as you've pursued your own company. It is for for sure. I'm very thankful I am in Canada, (laughs) not the States. Uh, but we we have a long way to go here in Canada um, in terms of like how we pay, how we promote, how we uh, recruit, how we interact and deal. Uh, there are a lot of uh, studies and research about discrimination and bias here in Canada. Um, last year, Van City published a report about um, bias and discrimination against visual minorities in Vancouver. And it was shocking, the number 
almost 80% of people who were interviewed said they experienced some bias or discrimination. But and I wonder if, if is it shocking to people that make up, I guess, maybe the white male population more so than I, I guess like other Canadians that maybe just kind of experience this on a much more frequent basis. Like I, I just wonder if maybe kind of what we consider kind of maybe the majority of the population finds this shocking when it really wasn't that shocking to other people. Exactly. Yeah. If uh, if you are a Japanese man in Japan, you wouldn't even know about bias against yeah. Japanese men. You move to the States or you move to Canada and you're like, oh, I am different. <laughs> They're treating me differently. So of course, if you are if you are from the majority, by definition, when I was living in in, uh, in Middle East, I didn't even think these issues exist. You know, uh, you come here, now you are a minority. So uh, same thing, like a woman works in an organization where like only 10 or 20% uh, of the employees are women she for sure will experience something different. You know, the whole culture might be designed around specific group, but not others, right? Mm -hmm. People with disabilities, for example, um, like for sure it's different for them than the life uh, other people go through, right? When we talk to you about trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but if you can't really relate to it, you start to make assumptions, biases might show in that regard too. Exactly. It's that one big issue now, and I think it's it's part of this uh, like trend that's happening is even if we go to people and say, hey, there is bias, there is discrimination, and all of that, um, okay, it opens their eyes to the issue, which is great first step when we go through training for un- unconscious bias. But uh, if we don't do something systematically to like solve it, it raises anxiety. So now for, so- for a white male, all his life he thought, you know what, we are equal, I don't really uh, discriminate against women. You come to him and tell him, hey, there is bias. That might really be uh, an anxious process for him to like digest every time he interacts with a woman or a visible minority or a or a, a person from a different race or gender. They will go through that thinking: Am I reacting the right way? Am I saying the right words? So it raises anxiety, right? And in some cases, it, it makes it it might makes things even worse. Let's go back to the Starbucks example. They're going to be undergoing training, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what this training might entail for these workers here? Yeah, so um, it depends on who's designing that training, but usually um, the goal of that training is to give them an idea about what unconscious bias is, racial bias in this case. Um, give them examples of how that bias exists in their like uh, normal life, and in their, uh, hopefully they design some examples about Starbucks themselves, and like how you can see that uh, bias in an interaction between uh, an employee and a customer, interaction between employees themselves, and then give them some tools and, and ways of how to handle and manage it. You cannot eliminate it, but you can give them some tools of like how they can suspend their judgment, uh, follow a specific process or a specific tool. You know, There is also a big part of that training about how the, the senior leadership at Starbucks needs to address the issue and say this is very important for us um, that's a big part that's at the beginning so the CEO usually opens and says this is very important for us we don't want this to happen again this is against our values and just like give that message to the employees what do you think about how Starbucks handled this issue I think they did a great job um, 
unconscious bias training is not, uh, it's a very good first step, but it's not the solution. But I think the way that they addressed that we made a mistake, so the way they apologized, the way they like rolled out this training in a very short period, the incident happened last month. So in, in four, six weeks, they rolled out, uh, they're rolling out the training and they're closing all these stores. They're also really, they did a really good job in sending it like a strong message. You know, this is important. We're shutting down the stores. Uh, so I think they did a good job. Will be interesting to see how this evolves over time. Will another thing happen? Will they really address the issue? The issue was that there was no clear policy of when to eject customers, mm-hmm. right? So they made it up to the store manager to decide. That's huge pressure for a person to decide on like who to uh, get out of the store and who to uh, keep, right? And uh, it's also a very uh, biased, human-biased process because now we're relying on the judgment of one person, right? Uh, so they need to fix that system, like fix that process, uh, policy. Oh, believe me, I've been to clear. coffee shops where it seems as if somebody hangs out there for about eight hours without ever buying a cup of coffee. But I think the thing with Starbucks is they have this policy that they want it to be branded as a quote unquote third place. They want you to feel comfortable at your home, at the work, and they think Starbucks should be another place that you should be totally comfortable there. So it's part of their brand, and this really went up against their brand as well. So it's kind of like like bad publicity for them. But in the wake of all this, you figure that they handled it actually quite well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They want to be this welcoming place. And it's a very diverse organization. If you look at the numbers and like uh, the composition of their employees, and they had done really good job with, um, with other issues related to bias. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a PR crisis. And I think they did a good job. Other organizations really uh, struggled with this issue. This is an example, of course, of a customer issue with the business, but you would see maybe issues around implicit racial bias with between employees, maybe, or employee and upper management. What kind of systems need to be in place to make an individual feel comfortable coming forward and knowing that, okay, it's not just going to be dismissed or that their job's not going to be on the line because they're bringing something up? Exactly. So this is the question many organizations we see here in Vancouver and we at HRX work with go through. And uh, so first of all, what industry are you operating in, right? Being in retail is different than being in construction or or finance or insurance. or um, So that's one thing. There are many HR processes, internal HR processes that you need to really look at. How do we recruit people? How do we promote why do we give an opportunity to lead a big project to X, but not Y? Is it uh, just based on the judgment of the manager or is it something that's uh, structured and really well designed to uh, and like to make sure everyone is included, right? And then you have to look at external processes. So the way you treat your customers, the way you uh, select vendors, the way that you uh, interact with your community, right? Assign funding for uh, like gift funding for mm. charities and all of that. So all of that, like it's many areas you have to uh, pay attention to. So while I think it's about two years ago since we first started chatting with you about what you guys are up to. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you've noticed that people are, are becoming more attuned to these issues. Do, do you notice that there's been an improvement, at least in terms of awareness, if not actually doing something about this issue? It is moving. Uh 
I would hope if it's a little bit faster, <laughs> the change. Um, there are organizations that are doing a really good job and they really believe in this. Uh, there are many others who are in the middle. So, yeah, we are, we are interested, but we don't know what to do or like our management doesn't really understand. And there are many, many organizations that have no idea, have no idea. Well, uh, while I, we always enjoy bringing you on the show to talk to you, our only concern is if we talk to you too much, it means that things aren't getting better. So, uh, but I, I do want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That's Wild Bowen. He is the CEO and founder of HRX Technology. Up next, we're going to be speaking to Matthew Williams, Senior Vice President at Franklin Templeton Investments Canada, all about saving for retirement. Haley, I think you and I, we can uh, talk to your friends, my friends. I, conversations are always going on about younger generations, about what exactly we're going to do for retirement. And we have some new research out that shows that the higher cost of living and maybe lower incomes that pe people are reporting, it's maybe driving Generation Xers and Millennials to put off retirement plans for later on in life. Calling in from Toronto today about the plight that younger generations are facing when it comes to saving up for retirement, it is Matthew Williams. He's Senior Vice President over at Franklin Templeton Investments Canada. Matthew, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for taking the time. So you guys have new research out. You're looking at a lot of the struggles that younger generations are having right now when it comes to saving for retirement. What is the sense that you get? Why are these particular issues persistent with these younger generations? We recognize that for uh, particularly Generation X, they seem to be, from our research, seeking to uh, retire later than, than originally planned. Um, and maybe this is perhaps correlated with the fact that our research showed that over a quarter of Canadian Generation Xs hadn't saved anything for retirement. As we, re as we well recognize uh, the cost of living continues to rise. I mean, inflation has been with us forever and will continue to be with us. But what we're seeing is because Generation X are doing things like having uh, children later uh, and possibly still educating them in their late 40s and 50s, uh, that is actually putting off the ability or propensity for individuals to save for their retirement. One of the other things that I keep thinking about, though, and look, you're, you're in Toronto, you, you look at the hot housing market there, I think, of course, Vancouver's known globally as having a very hot housing market. And I wonder if that is maybe splitting the priorities a little bit with regards to putting down money towards your mortgage versus, you know, putting money towards retirement, especially for Gen Xers. Uh, what's your take on maybe the influence that the housing market is playing here? I think the housing market has paid, played a... Uh, a rather large uh, influence Generation X has felt that their income was too low. Uh, yet 24% uh, have pleasingly percent of generation prioritised paying down their debt. And, you know, in our minds, uh, there is no harm in paying off of, uh, as much of your mortgage while interest rates are low. If you think about where interest rates have come from, over the last 30 years, we're at the bottom of an interest rate cycle. Interest rates are starting to creep up. Uh, and, and it's best to get your non-deductible debt paid down uh, while interest rates are low. So it was good, good to see that um, uh, you know, a quarter of the respondents have, priorita have prioritized paying down, their, paying down their debt. 
as there is a cohort that has not yet prioritized saving for retirement, what are they going to be coming up against in the longer term? I think one of the things that we need to consider for Generation X is that retirement may not necessarily be a single event. Um, A couple of thoughts there. We recognise that uh, as people move towards uh, that kind of retirement age that you know most individuals think about as, as 65, some may be able to retire um, because they have saved enough, but some may also be seeking to move to part-time employment uh, or move to do other forms of employment um, because of their because of their own circumstances. So one of the things we think about for Generation X is that there'll be gradations of retirement. It mightn't necessarily be an be an event as it was perhaps for the baby boomers or the parents of baby boomers. Um, Labor is much more mobile than what it uh, has been uh, and will continue to be more mobile uh, as uh, our global economy develops. I wonder. Are there some risks for planning to retire later on in life? Uh, your, your research does highlight the fact that maybe there's some unexpected circumstances that could pop up and interfere with those plans. Certainly the big one for me, and as you probably can tell, this is not a Canadian accent, but it's an Australian accent. <laughs> so one of the things that I, you know, I observe here in, this, in, uh, in Canada is, is the uh, opportunity, but also uh, some of the limitations that come with uh, universal health care. You know, having individuals think about uh, some of those health care costs later in life is, Im- is important to think about that uh, as you're going through your 40s and your 50s. So I think about the eldest baby, uh, sorry, the eldest generation Xs who are now approximately 54 years of age and they really need to be starting to think about what buckets of money they may have available to help them with some of those unintended uh, expenses that might come up, like healthcare. You know, what we do see is we feel that financial advice should actually be a great guide in this, and we, we recognise there's a number of reasons why, we, why you should seek the advice of a, a professional qualified financial advisor. I like to put this to any guest we have who has sort of an experience or background in in financial advising or investing, and that's that $1 million figure that we've heard before, you need a $1 million to retire. I think that's sort of out of date now, and of course, it will depend on who we're talking about and what their goals are, but can you maybe speak a little bit to how much more Canadians may need to be saving now for retirement compared to maybe what they needed to save 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge there is really uh, coming down to understand uh, what kind of retirement an individual or a couple or a a family wants. You know, there's kind of four levels in the way in which we think about it. We think about the essential level of retirement. We think about the basic level of retirement. We think about a comfortable level of retirement. And then we talk about more about a, a luxurious uh, type of retirement. So there's, there's kind of those four, you know, there's obviously uh, the essential, um, you know, being able to put food on the table, being able to accommodate. There's the basic, you know, which hopefully helps with, uh, in the first two, with some um, uh, support from the government. Then you get into more of a comfortable lifestyle where individuals have hopefully had the propensity to save for retirement, whether it's through 
a registered account or a non-registered account. Uh, and then there's those that, you know, it's, it's typically only a, a small percentage of the population that are, are, can afford a more, a more luxurious uh, type, of, uh, type of retirement. Um, what, what we do find is that um, uh, individuals are, are needing to save a little bit more, but they need to think about it in the context of what are the retirement living standards they're going to want divided by the living standards that they had in their working life. There was another rule of thumb that kind of went on. Uh, there was another rule of thumb that was considered uh, in years gone by that people needed to have 70% of their pre-retirement income uh, available for retirement. And that, that kind of notion is, is being uh, dispelled a, a little bit because that, what, what that suggests is that at 69% you failed but at 71% you've actually succeeded. So we need to move away from that a little bit and, and think about what the expenses are that, uh, that individuals might be thinking about for in retirement. So what your research also points out though is that large chunks of younger generations, millennials, Gen Xers, they have not begun saving up for retirement. And it makes me wonder, is there a certain point of no return? What happens with regards to your expectations for retirement if you don't start saving anything until you're, say, 40, 45 years old? It's, it's never too late to start. Uh, that's, I think that's kind of a, a golden rule. Um, you know, even if you're starting to save for your retirement 10 to 15 years out, uh, that's better than, than not saving for your retirement at all. I mean, what we are seeing in some older generations, uh, we are seeing uh, the, the baby boomers uh, who are maybe seeking to use some of that uh, asset price increase in their real estate to move into a smaller residence to free up capital in order to give them the income that they need in retirement. Um, that's that's a trend that we're that we're seeing, particularly in the Toronto and, and the Vancouver markets. Um, you know, one of the other things we're we're seeing is is in the in the younger generations is just having that ability to scrutinise discretionary expenses. And you know, it doesn't matter whether you're 25 or you're 65. One of the things that you know individuals really need do really do need to pay attention to is a monthly budget. So some of the basic principles of financial planning, doing a monthly budget, understanding your income, understanding your outgoings or expenses, and then that, that helps you uh, prepare for anything that may be left over or uh, hopefully affords you the opportunity to go and get some good advice uh, in order to get your affairs structured in such a way that you can can uh, begin to, to start to ret uh, think about saving for retirement. Uh, Matthew, I think the idea that it's never too late, that that's a good one to keep in mind, especially when we consider, I guess, just the financial strains a lot of people are under right now. But it's a great time talking to you. I really do appreciate you making yourself available. Pleasure. That's Matthew Williams. He's Senior Vice President at Franklin Templeton Investments Canada. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to leave a review. You can also find all our stories in print and online. Go to BIV.com. Thank you. 